glad you could be with us today. Uh, my name is Ben. Glad you could be our guest with us this morning and all of our wonderful family. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 25, or if you want to follow along on the screen behind me. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 25. We're really going to look at the whole chapter again. We've been doing that a lot in this series because these are long stories, long passages, but we're just going to read the beginning of the passage, verse 1 through 13, and then we'll cover the rest as we go. As you turn there, uh, you may have noticed if you're uh, one of our regulars around here or a member of our church that the stage is being uh, expanded. It's upgraded. I like that. Yeah, it's, it's under construction. So uh, if I fall, which I don't think I'm going to, but if it collapses under me, I love you. I love you. He's my firm foundation. Uh, but I think it's solid. I watched him build it. I think it's pretty solid. Uh, okay, so 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Hear the reading of God's word. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. And when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered, David's servants, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who, came, or who come from I do not know where? And so David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the way of wisdom. The way of wisdom. Let's pray before we jump into the text. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. You speak to us the way of wisdom. You are wisdom embodied. Lord Jesus, you walked in wisdom every moment, every day, all of your life, and now you reign in wisdom. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give it to us, your people who long to be wise, who long to be people who follow in your ways. May you bless us in your word today with your wisdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there was a couple that made the news a few years ago. Their name was Rich and Suzanne Gilson. 
and they had just purchased a home in New Jersey about six years ago, and they made the news based on what they found in this home. See, they renovated this home, or, or they bought the home to renovate it, and they started their renovations outside. They, they started to renovate the outdoors of their house, and, and they started in the front, and they began with uh, the driveway. I guess the driveway wasn't really functional, and so uh, Rich was outside, and he starts digging up the driveway so that they can replace the driveway. And as he's digging up the driveway that was there, he starts hitting things underground. He hits rock. He hits glass. He finds random objects. He finds roots. And so as he's digging up in the ground, he pulls out what looked to him like two roots that had come from a tree nearby. And so he tosses the roots to the side and, and continues to dig. And as he's digging, he looks over to the roots and he realizes they, they look a little funny. They don't look like what you would normally think. And so something catches his eye. He goes over, he picks up what looked like roots, and he notices they're not. He notices that there's something that's holding them together, and it looks like they're tied up. And in fact, it's actually a brown paper bag. And so he unties it, he starts to pull it apart, and as he pulls it apart, he realizes immediately what's inside. It's money. There's money inside this brown paper bag. And so he carefully pulls it apart to make sure that he doesn't rip any of the money. And as he pulls it apart, he notices it's money that's been rolled up, $10 bills, $20 bills, in perfect condition, buried under the ground. And as he lays them out, he realizes they're all from the same lot at the bank. And they all equal up $1,000. And there's a there's a date on the bag. It was 1934. 1934. $1,000 in 1934 would be equivalent today to about $22,000. Someone buried $22,000 under the driveway. And so as he's digging this up and realizing this, they, they call somebody and the news picks up the story. And, and so they come out and, and he tells his story to the news people. And, and he says, I don't know what happened. I don't know how this money got here. Either somebody robbed a bank because it's all from the same lot. Or they went in and they took their money out because it was the Great Depression. And they were afraid and so they buried it in their yard. But either way... He said to the news people, he said, I just want you to be clear. When people find out about this story, I don't want them coming to my house with a shovel. That's what his concern was. But could you imagine who, who seeks out treasure and finds it? Very few people. Very few seek treasure. Even fewer find treasure, especially under the driveway. I mean, how, how un, unusual that is, and yet in the biblical terms, the, the biblical imagery, this idea of seeking treasure is all over the Bible. But it's usually an image, it's usually a metaphor that's not used for seeking out the treasures of wealth, but the treasures of wisdom. The treasures of wisdom. In fact, if you go to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs says this about wisdom in chapter 2, verse 5. It says, search for wisdom as for hidden treasures. Search for wisdom as for hidden treasures. In other words, it's saying wisdom is this prized possession. It's something that, in fact, the Bible has a whole genre for wisdom. It's called the wisdom literature in the Bible. There's five books in the wisdom literature. There's Job, there's Psalms, there's Proverbs, there's Ecclesiastes, there's Song of Solomon. These books are devoted to you gaining wisdom. 
Because the Bible sees it as there is this incredible treasure that if you'll seek it out, it will transform your life. But what is wisdom? It's actually very different than knowledge. Some people hear wisdom and what they hear is knowledge, but knowledge and wisdom are different. Knowledge, get this, knowledge is acquiring truth. Wisdom is applying that truth. You see the difference? Knowledge is I'm going to gain truth, I'm I'm going to learn truth, I'm going to understand things, but wisdom is then taking that and applying it. I've heard someone describe it like this before. He said wisdom is when truth makes the, the journey from your head down to your heart and then out of your hands. Right? It's truth that you've learned and now you've, you've understood at a deeper level and now you've applied it out in your life because wisdom means you've actually put it into action. Knowledge you can keep to yourself, but wisdom you have to do something with it. And God, every time, prioritizes wisdom over knowledge. He prioritizes wisdom over knowledge because wisdom is the act of loving. You can know a lot of things, and not love the people with what you know. And so there's often this disconnect in our life, in all of us. There's this disconnect between what we know and what we do, right? You ever seen that in your own life? It's what author Dallas Willard calls, he says there's, let me get the quote right. He says, most of us in the church are educated beyond our level of obedience. That one hurts, doesn't it? Most of us are educated beyond our level of obedience. In other words, it's not a knowledge problem. We we know what God says about that relationship in our life. We know what God says about the money that we hold on to. We know what God has said about the bitterness that we nurture. We know what God says. We don't lack the knowledge. What we lack is living it. What we lack is wisdom, wisdom that we need. And so God is saying, I I want you to seek that out. I want you to prize that. I want you to, to, to long for that. We need wisdom. How do you gain it? How do you gain wisdom in your parenting, in your friendships, in your finances, in your walk with God? How does it go from just something I know to something I live That's what I want to look at today. So we're continuing this series through the book of 1 Samuel, and we've been walking through the book of Samuel, and now we're in the season in the book where David is on the run. King David, soon to be king, but he's been anointed king, is on the run for his life from King Saul, because Saul wants to squash David because David's going to take his kingdom, right? And so David is being chased through the wilderness. And so this whole uh, series of chapters in 1 Samuel is David running from one place to the next to the next, trying to save his life. And now in chapter 25, as he's on the run in the wilderness, he comes to a place where he meets these two characters. They're kind of the main characters of the story, Nabal and Abigail. Now, they're a married couple that couldn't be more different. They say opposites attract. This this is the definition of opposites attracting. Nabal, his name is actually the Hebrew word for fool. I don't know who his mama was, but I don't know how you name your son fool. I mean, some of the scholars think it's so bad, it's got to be a nickname. That can't be his real name. Because who names their child fool? But that's Nabal's name. His name means fool. And so he is 
the kind of the personification in the story of the way of foolishness. And then you've got his wife, Abigail, who's this beautiful and brilliant and wise woman. And she represents the way of wisdom. And you're going to see this contrast. It's a really a study in contrast between this husband and this wife. And they're going to show us, they're going to show us this way of wisdom. How do you go from living foolishly to living wisely? That's what I want to look at. So let's first look at this first point, two foolish men, two foolish men. Look at me at verse two. We'll jump in the story. It says this, and there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. Now, Nabal's introduction in the story is fitting. Uh, There's an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann. He says this. He says, Nabal's possessions precede his person. Only after being told of his riches are we told of his name. Isn't that fascinating? The narrator wants us to get something about Nabal. Even before he introduces to us who this person is, he says, I want you to know how this man is defined. He's defined by his wealth. He's defined by his status. He's defined as this rich man, this wealthy man. And before you can even know his name, this is what he's about. This is what he's about. Nabal is about himself. And so here's David... He's in the wilderness, and he's out there with his men. Remember, David's got 600 men hiding in the wilderness from Saul. And as they're out there in the wilderness, the wilderness is dangerous. And so they're taking care of Nabal's uh, shepherds who, who are out there in the wilderness in this dangerous area. And so here you have David and his men have kind of turned into uh, kind of a band of good Samaritans. They're out there in the wilderness caring for them and protecting them and feeding them. And so in other words, Nabal's wealth, his his status is growing at their mercy. And when the time comes for sheep shearing, which was payday for Nabal, David's men are hungry. And so David's men, they're out there in the wilderness, they're hungry, and they hear that Nabal is sheep shearing, that the feast is about to come. What you would do is you would invite the whole community and you would celebrate God's abundance and kind of show off that God has provided so much. And so David hears this is about to happen, and he sends some people over to Nabal. He says, go tell them how we've cared for you, right? Go tell Nabal that we've been out here caring for your sheep, caring for your shepherds. We've been protecting them, and then I want you to ask for us to get a seat at the table, right? Ask if he can just give us some of the leftovers of their feast. In other words, Nabal owes us. He owes us something for what we've done. Well, Nabal didn't really agree. Look at what happens in verse 10. He says this when he hears the message. Who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. In other words, David must be one of these runaway servants. I I don't know who this man is. And then he says, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? I mean, notice his possessive language. My bread, my water, my meat, my shears. Why would I give my stuff to someone else like you, David? In other words, I'm not grateful for you, David. I'm threatened by you. 
Nabal is showing his hand here. He's saying, these are the things that define me. You, you are threatening my position, my status. I don't want to be merciful to you. I don't want to be generous to you. I don't care who you are, David. I'm not giving you anything. It's foolish. Now, he's not the only fool in the story. There's a second fool here in verse 13. Look at what happens when David gets the word back. It says, and David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, right? It, it doesn't want you to miss the point. We're grabbing swords here. This is going to be a fight. This is going to be a fight. Now, last chapter, if you were here last week, we were talking about loving your enemies and you know, being merciful to those who hate you. It was beautiful, right? Beautiful stuff. David was so kind. I mean, Saul is trying to kill him, and David shows him grace and mercy. Not this time. Not this time. David, his response is, grab a sword. We're going to kill everyone. Now, why is that? Why is, in one chapter, David is so merciful and kind and gracious to his enemy, and now here, he wants to kill everyone Nabal has. Here's the difference. It's the same reason Nabal responds in that way, because they're both defending what defines them. See, Nabal is defending his status, his wealth. He doesn't want anybody to threaten that. And David is defending his reputation and his respect. But for both of them, they are defending what defines them. You catch that? In other words, it's the way of fools. The foolish must defend whatever defines them. The foolish have to go to war, have to defend what is the definition of their identity. And so we got to pause for a minute, and i got to ask you, what defines you? What defines you? See, for all of us, we've attached ourselves to various things in this life that, that are in unhealthy ways, right? All of us, in some way, we've attached ourselves to something that shouldn't really define us. It should only be smaller than that, but it's now become something that we've defined ourselves by. And some of us in our life, it, it might not have been us that did it. It might have been someone else who did it. Right? Maybe it was a parent or a boss or a coworker or a neighbor who, who's defined you in a certain way, and now you live with that label, and it is the definition of who you are. That can happen. Other people can try to put those labels on you, but often we, we choose it ourselves. Right? We, we seek out these things, and we attach ourselves to these things, and now they define us. My friend Jeremy Reyes said to our youth group last week, and I told him I'm going to quote him, he said this, other things may describe you, but only God defines you. Yeah. Well, he was preaching to the youth group. This, what he's saying is this. He was saying, other things in your life, they may describe you. Like it, you may be a certain type of person or you have certain interests, you have certain things in your story. They describe you, but only God can rightfully define you. Yeah. And so when other things start to define your, your personhood, your identity, who you are, that's where it goes wrong. That's where it becomes unhealthy. And so you got to ask yourself, what, what is defining me? Right? Is it at your job? You, you've got this reputation as a hard worker, and so anytime someone questions your work ethic, you immediately get upset. Or maybe it's you, you're defined by your, your status and, and your comfort level, and so the moment you start to feel the squeeze of finances, it, it, it's a defining moment for you. 
I don't know what it is in your life. Maybe you're defined by a relationship, and so the moment that breakup happens, you've lost completely who you are. I don't know who I am anymore. I've lost my sense of definition. What is it for you? What, What is that thing that defines you that shouldn't define you? Let me tell you, this text can tell us something uh, what, what it does is we can see, uh, we, we can tell what defines us by what we defend. We can tell what defines us by what we defend. In other words, when it's threatened, we want to grab a sword. When it's threatened, I, I want to go to war. I, I want to go to battle. Uh, no one's going to threaten the thing that defines me. If, if it's my kids that define me, I'm going to war over my kids. If it's my job that defines me, I'm going to war over my job. But I'm going to grab a sword, and everyone around me is going to grab a sword, and we're going to defend what defines me. You hear that? I mean, if you, want, if you want insight into what really defines you, I'm not talking about the right answer, the Sunday school answer, Jesus. I'm talking about your functional identity. Watch your reactions. Watch your reaction. What what gets a reaction out of you? What what causes you to to get upset, to get angry, to get emotional? What demands a defense out of you? That might be, it just might be something that you've allowed to define you. Try this. Someone told me this years ago, and it's impossible, so I want you to try it with me. But try for seven days. Try for seven days to just not defend yourself. You probably can't go one day. I mean, it's, it's difficult. It sounds easy, but it's not. Try for seven days to not defend yourself at all. Big things, small things, with your, with your kids, with your parents, with your whoever, right? Everyone in your life, not a single person can you defend yourself with. Some of you are already like, well, what if I'm right? What, what if I'm right? I mean, I should defend myself if I'm right. Maybe, but just for seven days. Try not to defend yourself. And watch how hard it is. Watch, watch how your emotions come up and what, what causes you to want to defend yourself. And it'll give you a ton of insight to say, maybe, maybe those things just might matter too much to me. Maybe I'm defending them because they define me more than they should. Maybe they should just describe me, not define me. Watch what comes to the surface. See, why is defining ourselves like this so foolish It's because these things change, right? The Bible calls it the folly of idolatry. It's this sense that we know that these idols or these attachments or these things that we've allowed to define us, they're they're going to change. That's why we defend them so much. We know that relationships change. We we know that money's going to change. We know that uh, our jobs are going to change. We know that all these things change that we try to define ourselves by. And so we know if it's it's being threatened, I got to attack it. But we also know that at the end of the day, you can't fully control those things. And this is what makes it so foolish is we try to define ourselves by things that are going to change. They're going to change. And ultimately, it leads you to make really foolish decisions. So if this is the way of fools, what, what does wisdom look like? We, well, we got to look at a wise woman. This is where all the women said amen. amen. Two, two foolish men and a wise woman. Look at me at verse 18. Verse 18, it says this, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayers of parched grain 
and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. Now, what happens in between this is one of Nabal's servants overhears what's going on between Nabal and David. He hears that there's war about to break out. And so he goes to his wife, Abigail, and he says, look, these two fools are about to cause everyone to die. This is not going to be good. You, you need to do something about this because no one can talk to Nabal. He's a fool. He doesn't listen to anybody. And so he goes to Abigail and says, please do something about this. And when she hears, she listens. Right? It's the first step of wisdom. She's, she's listening. She's humble enough to receive this message. And then what does she do? Where her husband was greedy, where her husband was selfish, she decides she's going to be over-the-top generous. Right? She, she gives an incredibly massive gift. She says, okay, if David wants to see that we're going to be generous, here's all the stuff we're going to give him. She packs it up on the donkeys. She heads out to go confront David as he's on his way to kill everybody because she wants to stop him. And when she shows up, remember, she isn't threatened by David. She's not, uh, she's not defined by her wealth or status, so she has the ability and the freedom to just give, to just give. And her gift actually increases when she shows up. Look at what happens in verse 24. When she shows up with David, it says this, she fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Let, or please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. In other words, Abigail is saying this. She's saying, I'm not just going to give you the stuff that you've asked for. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to take all the guilt that my husband rightfully deserves because he was foolish and he's, he's selfish and he doesn't want to share what you've blessed him with. You know what? I'm going to take all of his punishment, all of his wrath. I'm going to take it upon myself. Right? This is an incredible moment where Abigail gives what no one else in the story gives. How does this happen? How is David so insecure? How is Nabal so insecure? And how is Abigail so secure and generous? You want to know the reason? It's because she is the only person in the story who's grounded in the Lord. Here, here's it, here it is. In the story, you go back and read the whole chapter. No one mentions God until Abigail speaks. Isn't that strange? Nobody, not David, not Nabal, not any of the servants, nobody mentions God once. And then when Abigail gives her speech, and this is a chapter full of speeches, they have plenty of opportunity, Abigail mentions him seven times. Seven times, because it just kind of comes out of her pores. This is who I am. I am not defined by my riches and wealth, because she had just as much money as her husband. I'm defined by the riches of our Lord. I'm not defined by reputation and status, right? I am defined by the status I have in the Lord. This is what she's saying. He is my foundation. And so she can give. See, Abigail lives out Proverbs 9. Proverbs 9 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. The wise, get this, the wise freely give because they're grounded fully. They, they can give freely because they're grounded fully. You might have heard of the, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, but have you heard of the Leaning Tower of Manhattan? I recently heard about this. I didn't know this was a thing, but I heard about it this week. This, this skyscraper in Manhattan was built just a few years ago. It's, it's a fairly new building, 
And when they built it, it was supposed to be luxury condos, right? In, in Manhattan, with all the, the wealth and business and all, all the, the things that come with Manhattan, luxury condos. One problem is it leans three inches to the north. Now, skyscrapers, they're, they're supposed to have a little bit of give in the wind, but then when the wind stops, they settle and they're straight. Not this, not this guy. It, it's leaning three inches, and so... That's a problem. It's unsafe. It's, it's uninhabitable. And so right now it's just sitting there as an empty skyscraper until they can figure out what they're going to do. But I don't know much about architecture or, or engineering, but I know this. They, they've come to this conclusion. Whatever happened in the foundation wasn't correct. And basically what they think is they, they tried to use an easier way of, of making the foundation by treating the soil is what they call it. But obviously the soil settled and now the building leans. And what they should have done was the more expensive, more time-consuming, more difficult work of what they call the piling method. Now the piling method, piles are these concrete or, or steel pillars, right? These columns that go deep down into the ground. And what they do is they hammer them into the ground. They hammer and they hammer and they hammer until it reaches all the way down to the bedrock at the bottom. Right? Instead of getting in the loose soil, they want to get all the way down to the bottom. And sometimes they, they hammer these piles all the way down 25 floors below the ground. But what happens is once it hits that bedrock, this heavy skyscraper is able to be settled and, and uh, supported by uh, these, these enormous piles. In other words, in order to build higher, in order to build higher and stable, you have to go deeper into the ground. In order to go higher, you have to go deeper. Listen, this is how wisdom works. The way of wisdom is to dig deeper. The way of wisdom is to go below the surface. And what that means is wisdom is going to happen slowly. It's not going to happen quick. There's no shortcut to wisdom. There's no uh, rushing wisdom. You, you can't just treat the surface soil. In order to have wisdom, you have to dig down deep into the issues that have been defining you. Right? You have to dig down deep into the issues that you have allowed to, to define you in unhealthy ways. And so that means it's going to take time. Because now you've got to slow down and you've got to take the time to deal with how you've allowed your career to define your life. You've got to dig down and you've got to deal with how you've allowed your kids and your parenting to define your life. You've got to dig down and realize that I've, I've allowed my, my reputation and, and people's opinions of me and their approval of me to define my life. And I've got to slow down and deal with that issue. You can't just rush past it. You can't just read a book about it. You can't just acquire more knowledge. You have to do the work of wisdom, which is to slow down and deal with those issues but it's going to be slow. And here's the thing. The way of wisdom isn't just slow. It's often unseen. It's below the surface, right? We live in a culture where we want to make everything about the, our, our public persona. We want to make everything out there on the internet. It's got to be on Instagram or it's not real. It, we want it to be our, whatever we look like on, on the internet, that, that is who we are, that that is what we portray to the world. And so I want to tell you this morning that wisdom doesn't happen in the public place usually. Wisdom doesn't happen on social media or even in the church service on Sunday or, or wherever you're at in your job. It doesn't happen in the public uh, perception. Wisdom is built and nurtured in the unseen areas of your life. 
Wisdom is built when you're, you're working and, and you're digging deeper in, in your life of prayer. It's built when you're working and you're digging deeper in, in your life of scripture, in, in a life of reflection, in a life of rest, in a life of, of, of pursuing God, in a, in a life of reflecting with others and having deep relationships with others. That's where wisdom happens. It happens in the unseen. It's not about posting wise things. It's not about talking to people about how wise you are. It's not about people thinking you're wise because of what you do at your job. Wisdom happens in the unseen areas as you keep going deeper until you hit the bedrock. And listen, when you hit the bedrock, that is when now you've got a firm foundation, a deep foundation that gives you undeniable freedom. See, now, like Abigail, you can give yourself away freely, right? You can be radically generous with your time, your talent, your treasure, because none of those things define you anymore. You don't have to be like Nabal and say, I'm going to hold on to these things because I have to protect them because you're threatening them. No, I can give them away. You don't have to be like David and say, you know what? If you wrong me, I'm going to wrong you 10 times the amount because you can't disrespect me. No, you know what? You can just humbly listen. You can show mercy. You can show compassion. Why? Because they don't define you. You've hit bedrock. You, you have a place, you have a foundation that frees you up to be generous in all of your life. That's the difference. The way of the fool can't be generous, but the way of the wise can be more generous than anybody. So how do you do that? How do you go from the foolishness to the wise? We need to look at a wise Savior, and this is the last point, a wise Savior. Look at verse 32. It says this, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. David is saying, after he listens to Abigail, he says, I'm so glad the Lord sent you because I was about to do something really foolish. I was about to kill all these people, and all their guilt would be on me. Blessed be the Lord. David like erupts in worship saying, God has sent you to save me from myself. I am such an idiot. How could I have thought this was a great idea? Thank you, Lord, for Abigail. Now, Abigail has saved her or saved him not only from his foolishness, but for a temporary moment, she saves Nabal, her husband, because now David relents and he says, I'm not going to kill him, but God is going to later take care of Nabal because he's still a foolish man. He doesn't change his ways at all. But Abigail in this scene has saved both of these foolish men from their foolish acts. However, David is ultimately saved from this temptation, but not perfectly. See, David shows in this temptation that even though he ultimately says, I'm not going to kill all these people, there was murder in his heart. He, he sinned and he was foolish by saying, you know what, I'm going to kill everybody because they've wronged me. And so he shows that he's not this promised perfect king that they were waiting for. In fact, it's as if David is back in the garden where Adam and Eve were, and just as they were tested and tempted, David fails. And it's just like David that he was not only in the garden like Adam and Eve, but he was in the wilderness like Israel, where Israel's walking through the wilderness and, and as they're being tempted, they are sinning against the Lord, failing their temptation. David is living out Adam's story and Israel's story and our story. He's living out this temptation in the wilderness that is a theme throughout the whole Bible. And again, like them, 
he fails. His temptation to be a foolish king who grasps at his own kingdom by shedding blood, he gives into. But listen, there would be a true and better king, a son of David who would come and who would overcome temptation wisely. See, Jesus would come as the son of David and he would never fail a single temptation. Not once. In Matthew chapter 4, uh, we, see da- uh, we see Jesus tempted in the wilderness. And we mentioned this last week because there's so many parallels between David in the wilderness and Jesus in the wilderness. And we see Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy. And the enemy comes to Jesus and he tempts him by saying this, Jesus, if you are the son of God, prove yourself. Right? He tempts Jesus, prove yourself, and Jesus resists. And then he tempts Jesus and he says, provide for yourself, and Jesus resists. And then he tempts Jesus and he says, prioritize yourself, and Jesus resists. Over and over, Satan comes to Jesus and he says, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if you are who you say you are, do this. Now, do you hear it? What's happening in Jesus' temptation is the temptation is really about what is defining you, Jesus. What, what is your grounding? Where, where is your foundation? What is defining you, Jesus? That's the temptation that Jesus has to overcome. And listen, does he ever give in? No. However, Jesus overcomes in the wilderness because of what happens at the river. Follow me for a second. In Matthew chapter 3, right before the wilderness, Jesus hears his father's voice in his baptism as he comes up out of the water in the Jordan River. This is what Jesus hears. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Let me tell you right now, this might be the most significant verse in the entire Bible. Here's why. Because Jesus, before he was raised from the dead, his father was fully pleased with him. Before Jesus died on the cross, his father was fully pleased with him. Before Jesus began any of his ministry, his father was fully pleased with him. Before Jesus was even conceived in Mary's womb, his father was fully pleased with him. In other words, before Jesus did anything, his father was fully pleased. He had the deep love of his heavenly father. Jesus gives himself freely because he's loved deeply. See, like Abigail, he's grounded in the love of the Lord. Jesus offers himself in our place, our wise and gracious Savior. He cries out as our substitute, on me be their guilt. On me be their guilt. On him alone be our shame. On him alone be our failures. On him alone be our fears. On him alone be our past, our present, our future. See, Jesus saves us from the foolishness of our sin by becoming sin for us. That's what he does. That's his wisdom. He takes all that we deserve, all the righteous wrath of God, and he says, I'll take it on myself so that I can give to them freely what I've earned. I can give to them my beauty, my wisdom, my grace, my mercy, so that they can give it away freely. That's the good news of the gospel. We have a wise Savior who says, I'm I'm rooted. I am grounded in the love of my Father, and so I can give myself. See, this morning as we close, do you need to receive the full love of God so you can give it freely? That's what I want to ask you this morning. That's the way of wisdom. The way of wisdom is repentance and faith. 
Repentance means I'm, I'm turning away from the things that have, I've allowed to define me, and now I'm turning towards Jesus and allowing him to define me, allowing him to, to be the one I trust, to, to make my identity who I am so that it's secure because he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and if he gives you his grace, it's secure. It's secure. And so now if you're secure in Christ, you can give everything. Your whole life becomes a gift the way of wisdom. Let's pray. Oh, wise and gracious Savior, we are so grateful for the love that you had for your Father and for the Father's love for you that creates this incredible environment for generosity, the greatest gift ever given. That you would give yourself, you would give the blood of God for sinners like us. Oh, Lord Jesus, may your blood cover us. May it secure us. May it make us redefined in your gospel, not defined by our careers or our kids or our money or our status or our control or our circumstances of any kind. God, may we be defined as people in Christ and walk in that wisdom. Lord, we pray you would do it for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet.